Well, good to see all of you this morning. Once again, thank you for being here. As, as the Word of God hopefully is ministered by the Holy Spirit through us to, to us today. This morning we're continuing in our study, and we're only in Lesson 19. This may actually eclipse the 10-year lesson. I don't know whether it was John Piper, whoever it was, had spent years and years in studying uh, teaching Romans, so maybe this will rival that in, in length. This morning we're continuing in chapter 6. just want to begin by thanking, even though he's not in the meeting right here, thanking Ronald Litano so much for his uh, sharing last week. Uh, this is, uh, he, he's an excellent teacher. He's an excellent teacher. Did anybody find that out? He's an excellent teacher. And, and what's so good about what the Holy Spirit does in those who teach? Because, you know, I have taught the class. Ronald now has taught the class. Evan May has taught the class. Bill Treby has taught the class. Uh, Nick Missios has taught. Uh, and there may be one or two others I'm leaving out. You know, that just happens. It's amazing and it's wonderful that God uses different tools to accomplish the construction of his church. And so anyone who knows anything about woodworking, whatever, you know that certain tools are needed to build certain aspects of a house. And it's not that one tool is better than the other, but when it comes to a particular emphasis, God uses a particular tool. And then he uses another tool over here. And so thankfully, he is giving us a variety of tools in which to build the house of God in this church. And so we're discovering that he's given us another wonderful tool in Ronald. And so let me encourage you, if you did not do this, to make sure you tell him uh, what you thought and how it ministered to you. One of the weaknesses of many in the church, and I know it's one of my weaknesses, is to express what I feel of appreciation and of ministry. And so if you were ministered to, just send him a text or an email or whatever it is, and you don't have to be flowery, just to let him know how much it encouraged your heart. This morning we're continuing now in chapter 6, although he did not get everything finished in his presentation last week, just want to kind of move along. So this morning we're getting into chapter 6, the first 18 verses. And uh, remember last week, Jesus was dealing with the kinds of deeds in those last verses, the six of them deeds, that illustrated the greater righteousness. Jesus said in verse 20 of chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And I think Ronald dealt with what that meant. Um, Jesus now is going to turn his attention not just to the deeds. He's already dealt with some of the deeds, representative deeds of righteousness, which distinguish us from the righteousness of others who are not members of the kingdom of God. He's talking to his disciples. Your righteousness as compared to the righteousness of others who are not members of the kingdom. And we're going to find out in life that there are going to be people in our lives that seemingly look like, appear like, talk like, act like, more righteous than we do. Have you ever noticed that there are unbelievers who are more kind than believers? Am, am I the only one who's noticed that about myself? Have we ever noticed that there are unbelievers who are more gentle and patient than believers? 
Have we ever noticed that there are unbelievers who are more generous than believers? What do we do about that? Because our propensity is to say this. Well, if, if he is so generous and he's so kind and he's so loving, how can he not be a believer? And if you struggle with this, come on, anybody struggle with this? I mean, how can this person not be a believer? Look at the kindness, the goodness, the forbearance, the, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5, and 23. It looks like the fruit of the Spirit is being manifested in this person more than in my pastor. Notice I didn't say my pastor's wife. I said my pastor. This person talks more about God than this believer does. What's the deal? This morning, in our context, in these verses 1 to 18, and Jesus will give us three illustrations of what, where the difference is. It's not just the external manifestation of deeds. It's the motive behind the deed. So here it is. Why do I do what I do? A lot of doo-doos in there. Why do I do what I do? Why do you do what you do? Why do you say what you say? Why do you go where you go? Why do you have the relationships that you have? Why do we do? What motivates us? What drives us? What is underpinning the way we live? And the expression of our lives. Because we want to be very careful that we are not believers who are living a life that is externally motivated. Does that make sense to you? That is externally motivated. But that is internally motivated by the presence and goodness and will of God given to us and empowered in us. By the Spirit of God, through the instruction that is in the Word of God. All of that comes together. And so, let's look at some of these motivations that Jesus is going to talk about in chapter 6. Father, as we proceed, Father, I'm well aware personally, personally, that as we talk about motives, this is an area, Father, of so much need in me, so much need, so much illumination, so much building up and correction and adjustment. Father, I and I know that we, Father, we want to be your people, that our motivation is you, who you are, how you are, your purpose your will, all about you. Father, we want our motivation to be that we are imaging our Heavenly Father in any and every aspect of our lives. So, Father, this morning as we speak, as faulty as words are of a human being, Father, we know that the word of the Holy Spirit is never faulty, never confusing, always clearly given to us. 
instructing us, changing us, revitalizing us. So, Father, this morning, in a deeper way than before, before today, Father, would you communicate to us concerning our motivations in any particular area, in every area, Father, and adjust our motivations to be the motivation that you had when you created us. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Father, would you do that in a greater way? In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, you'll see the word hypocritical. How do you say it now? I said it wrong. Now, how do you say it? Hypocritical. I know. It, it's, I said it wrong. When you say something wrong, have you ever noticed when you say it wrong, you can't say it correctly? Hypocritical. Hypocritical. Hypocritical is that the outer is not in conformity with the inner. That there is a mass. The word hypocrite is from the Greek, and it had to do with the actors in Greek drama putting on a mask, pretending to be one person in one scene, and then coming back and putting on another mask, being another person in another scene. It just has to do with acting a part, playing a part. And so that whatever is being seen on the outside is maybe masking that which is on the inside because the inside is different than the outside. That's hypocrisy. And by the way, only God knows whether we're being hypocritical, and he is the one who shares with us. He may share with us through the conversation and the uh, whatever of others, but only he reveals our hearts. Thankfully, I don't even know my own heart. Thankfully, he is the one I can go to. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness... Your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus introduces this, this group of verses, this instruction in verses 2 to 18 with this verse. And he introduces the illustrations first by warning his disciples against being motivated by self-aggrandizement since such deeds will not be rewarded, rewarded by God. In other words, what we do is not about us, for us, or from us, essentially. What we are doing is to be motivated from God, about God, and for God as his image bearers. And although God's people are saved, we were saved to perform good works. Remember, deeds of righteousness, Ephesians 2.10. For we have been saved, you know, God has saved us for good works, that we should walk in these good works that God has beforehand prepared. So works are extremely important. In fact, works are the foundational proofs that we are obedient, the God's obedient people. The foundational proof is not how you feel about something, is that what is going on to the inside, is it being translated on the outside in works of righteousness, genuine deeds of righteousness that manifest the very righteousness of the Son of God as he was here on the earth. This is the way we know we're children of God. Not necessarily because I said, Jesus, be my Savior, or I feel a certain way or whatever, but the primary proof is in the fruit. As I said before, the fruit proves the root. The root produces the fruit. And so the primary way, there's a bush in our backyard, which I didn't bring in during the cold snap we had a while back. And so all the leaves fell off. What is that thing called? Is that 
Shafalera? Oh, a Shafalera. And so had a big old Shafalera in the backyard. And after the cold snap, about a week later, going, everything's falling off. And I'm thinking it's dead. Well, I actually went up to the plant, put my hand on and said, Lord, would you be gracious enough to retain life in this, this, this plant? It was, you know, black and de- whatever. After a while, I saw a little green thing coming forth. What did I know? It's alive. It's alive. Are green things being sprouted in our lives? Are green things being sprouted? How do I know it's alive? Not because it's in the garden, not because it's in my property, not because I'm watering it, but because I see the effect of all of that in the green things. That's how I know. So in the next 17 verses, Jesus is going to illustrate the point of our motivation in three categories. First, the practice of giving. You know what I love? And I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. I don't, maybe I do. We take offerings in the church. Fine. And someone stands up there and says something about giving. Fine. Or one of the pastors, one Sunday morning, being led by the Holy Spirit, preaches a sermon about giving. And all of a sudden, there are going to be folks in the church are going to do what? What are they going to do, Phil? Give. But what else? They're going to complain about what? Why do you people always talk about giving? Jesus begins by talking about giving. Why? Why not talk about something else and leave the giving alone? Because don't you know that giving is a very personal issue and we shouldn't be speaking about it or emphasizing it. Giving is between God and the believer. It is. But that's not how we're to be leaving it. Why does Jesus begin with talking about giving? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave. I can tell you a more fundamental verse. What's the most fundamental verse of all? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? God's self-giving to share himself with his people and in his people created the heavens and the earth. So he could have a people with whom and in whom and through whom he could give and share himself to all creation. One of the most fundamental attributes of God is that he is a giving God. Bill Treby said it one Sunday morning. God loves a hilarious giver. And he said this. And I I think I wrote you a little text or something to say. And he said this. God himself is a hilarious giver. Do you remember saying that? God himself is a hilarious, I don't remember half of what I said, although others sometimes do. God is a hilarious giver. Can we get that this morning? Why is giving so important? Because we're made in the image of one who is the most generous being in all creation. Having held nothing back from us, even to the place, Paul says, that he has given even his own son. So why should a giving be primary? 
in Jesus' mind as he begins to share these three illustrations. Because he is remembering and he knows the Father's heart. He knows. That's why it begins with giving, I believe. So what is our motive behind giving? Let me walk back over here. Thus, he said, when you give, not if you give, but when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they had their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, secret. And your father who sees it in secret will reward you. So in Jewish society, the way the needs of the poor were taken care of was not through Social Security and all of these governmental activities, but what? Through the giving of those who had anything to give under the leadership of God, they gave, and that money went to the needy of the, and, and, and took care of the needs of many people in the society. It's a very poor society in those days, and still those societies exist upon the earth. And so you see, such giving was to reflect God's generosity toward us, his spiritually poor people. Remember, blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. Why are we not any longer poor in spirit, meaning bereft of the spiritual life of God? Because God seeing us and knowing us and wanting us to be his gave to us. And in the same way, we are to be giving into the needs of others through giving to God as he takes that which is given and distributes it and uses it for the purpose of the gospel and for the ministry of people. And so Jesus didn't say, you notice he didn't say, and I don't think this means he did not mean it, but his specific purpose was give to the people, give to the needs of the people. And so when we give to the church, are we giving because we like the ministry? Are we giving because, you know, that, that's our favorite pastor over there or the music? We should be giving because we're giving to the needs of the people for whom God has ordained that this income will be blessing. I didn't think we gave to the needs of the people. I thought we gave for the gospel. We're giving to the needs of the people. The gospel furthers and gives the people what they need. And so it becomes a synonymous thing. The gospel is not separated from people. The gospel is what it is because of God's people, because of God's purpose of wanting a people. If it were not for the purpose of God in wanting a people, there'd be no gospel. So we need to be careful not to make a distinction between, I'm giving for the gospel. What about the people? Well, you know, I'm giving for the gospel, for the preaching of the word, and for the teaching of the word, and for the music of the word. Well, great, but for whom is that ministry? Frogs, chevaleras, or people. How many of us were saved by the gospel? So the gospel is God's news to his people. And our giving is into that purpose. You see, there is a, by the way, what about it's secret? Jesus said it's secret twice. Does that mean, and we have our church Treasure, I mean, um, a CPA here, Darlene Bado, does a wonderful job, is literally slaves along with all this. This is a tough thing, putting all this together financially and balancing it out. She'll spend, how long do you spend sometimes to even look for a penny? I mean, it's important, I suppose, isn't it? You know, 
And I don't know whether I told you this, but I remember telling a CPA one time, he was about a penny or two off, said, la, la, you can't find, here, take a penny. That's not how it works. <laughs> it was something about a piece of paper and a penny. And what was I talking about? And there are people, and Darlene would tell you this, there are people in the church who do not want to give any public, uh, you know, giving. So they will give cash, and we will know, not know who they are, correct? Now, is that the way Jesus said it? Because if I write a check to the church, and Darlene knows it, and it's listed somewhere, is that wrong to be known what I'm giving? It, again, depends upon the motive. Is your motive, do you feel that the Lord is instructing you to give without any public announcement of that? If you do, James, then that's the way you give. But even in that, in that, make sure that our motive isn't that if I do it some kind of way, I'm going to lose a reward. God rewards on the basis of the motive behind the giving. What happens... If we have someone on Sunday morning, and I think, Phil, I think you introduced, I've forgotten who it was, someone who shared about giving on Sunday morning, one of the testimonies. And so someone stands and says, here's what the Lord has done in me. And as a result, I'm giving a tithe now. And here's what God is doing. Oh, he said secret. And you should, mm. no, there's a place for both. There's a place for both. The motive behind it. Is God's motive in us for the building up of his church and for the glorifying of his name, whether we do it privately or publicly, is my motive led by the Spirit for the glory of God? It may be that I would share with someone what we give. And I'm not ashamed to tell anybody what Gene and I give. Or if that's how the Lord says to do, to build someone up or to challenge someone by the Spirit to be releasing that giving in your life, then let's do it. Or not to say anything. Not to say anything. So which is right? Private or public giving? Neither one. Neither one. It's the motive of the heart. The Pharisees said, da 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 Took a hundred dollar bill, da 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 da, boom. Ah, oh, okay. And people say, wow, look at that. Jesus said they've lost the reward. They've lost the reward. Why do we emphasize the tithe? Because we believe God emphasizes it. Why do people give a tithe? Hopefully because it honors and pleases our Heavenly Father. Why don't people give a tithe? Because either they don't understand or see that it pleases God, or they just refuse to do so because of other issues. And there may be another motive, whatever. So let's be motivated by what the Lord says. And when you pray, verses 5 to 8, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that you have received your reward. But when you pray... Not if, but when you pray, go into your closet or your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret, secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Public prayer. Public prayer. 
Prayer is the most basic communion we have with God. I've said this before, and it bears saying, and I'll say it next week. Prayer is a family matter. Talking about the prayer of Christians, because everybody prays, as you know. And Jesus, once again, is dealing with this issue of the Pharisees walking around and calling out to God and praising God and praying to God in public. Why? For the purpose of being seen as spiritual leaders. Jesus said, this is the way you do it. Go into your house, shut your door, go into a closet and pray in secret. And when you do this, God will honor you publicly. I'm sorry, God will reward you. Now, once again, does that mean that a public prayer is wrong? No. Because we have many instances of public prayers. And in fact, in Ephesians, how many times does Paul utter a prayer? Twice. Twice this man prays. Is that in contradiction to what Jesus says? No, Jesus is correcting the faulty motive of those who pray in public to be known and to be seen. Now, they may, there may be believers who say, look, I don't want to pray publicly because I genuinely feel this is not the Lord's way. Okay, fine. If they feel that this is how the Lord is leading them to honor God and to commune with God, okay, that's great. Now, if their motive is not instructed or informed adequately by the word, then we pray that their, their motive will be instru- uh, adequately informed by the word, that they'll grow in this and pray in other ways if that's how the Lord is leading them to do. How many of you have ever been in a prayer meeting? And, oh, hold on, I'm, let me go over. You've been in a prayer meeting and someone has stood up or sat down, whatever, and it was an incredible prayer. The terminology and the words and the length and the gathering of theology and all of that. And then you think, now I'm going to pray after that? How many of you have ever have, I'm supposed to pray after that? Assuming that the first prayer was not motivated by personal aggrandizement. Okay, assuming that. Let's assume the best of that. And you certainly can pray like that at how the Lord leads you. Fine. Your faulty, failing, stammering prayer before God, if, again, communicated out of a motive of worshiping and praying and communing with God as your Father, is as acceptable to him as the most lofty prayer you ever heard. You see, where is the success in praying? It's not in the words... It's in the doing of the praying. It's in praying. That's where the success is. Evangelism. Where is the success in our evangelism? That we share the gospel. That's where the success is. We leave everything else to God. He deals with how it impacts. And so, pray in a way that manifests a heart that is devoted to God as Heavenly Father. When we were in Russia several years ago, and I don't remember which time because we went a few times, we were in a small home. <clears throat> well, actually, none of the homes were big. And there's a little apartment house, and Kevin may have been there. I'm not sure. And we had a b- bunch of Russian folks together and two or three of us who were part of the evangelistic team. 
and an older lady was sitting there. And, you know, the Russian Orthodox do the rosary. It's a prayer. They, they have a prayer beads. But maybe they don't call it rosary, prayer beads. And she asked me, she says, should I pray the prayer beads? Now, here I am. Here I am. I'm going to slam dunk this thing, baby. I'm going to tear up this thing because I know it's demonic and it needs to be thrown away and stomped away, right? So I asked her, I said, do you have a son? Yes. Where's your son? I don't know where he was, someplace. And so let's say this. Your son writes you a letter. And you get the letter and you read it. Dear Mama, I miss you so much. I love you and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, oh, what a beautiful letter. Then the next day you get another letter in the mail. Dear Mama, I love you so much. I miss you so much, et cetera. Oh, okay. The third day you get another letter. Dear Mama, I love you so much. And I asked her, is this the communication you want from your son. Well, no. I don't want the same thing every day. I said, that's how God is, isn't he? I didn't tell her whether she should pray the prayer beads. I didn't tell her that. It was not my place in that context at that time to do that. And you say, oh, my goodness, because Peter's pretty good about telling people things. Where was her heart? It wasn't theologically and emotionally at the place where she could receive that kind of instruction. What she needed to know was not about the prayer beads. What she needed to know was about her heart communion with her son. Isn't that God? Why don't be repetitive over and over and over? What's wrong with the rosary? Because it has the name, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy Lord, thy, thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full. Is the problem with the prayer, the, uh, what's it called, rosary, Mary? There is an issue there. The problem is, is it real personal communication and communion? And we're good about, man, get rid of those beads and throw them away and burn them because they are of the devil. But then who are we before God? Do we come before God regularly and say and say and say and talk about and whatever the same things? If you do, is that repetition? It just depends upon how you're being led by the Spirit. Just be led by the Spirit and commune with God as Father rather than as a slot machine. As a slot machine. Because this is the kind of communion I don't want from my grandchildren or my daughter or even my wife the same thing said over and over and over and over again. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and for their, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by others, by, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. 
Fasting was a common Old Testament practice. Won't go into kind of the details. The Pharisees usually fasted Mondays and Thursdays. And when they did this, they wanted to make sure, I'm fasting. And so when you saw them on those days, you know they were what? Putting aside food and water or drink or whatever it was for a period of time in order for the purpose of a fast to be coming to God in a way that these issues are out of the way to hear something from God. But they wanted you to know it. They wanted you to know it. And whether fasting is for today, Jesus, there is not a lot of emphasis in the, in the New Testament. There is a little bit of emphasis of whether we should fast or not. It is not a requirement, I don't think. If it's fasting is what you think and believe the Lord leading you to do for a particular time, great. There are people in this church who fast regularly under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Is that right or wrong? Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit is right. Suppose there's a person in the church, I've never had the leading of the Holy Spirit to fast. (gasps) Is that wrong? No. Am I being led and motivated by God in this? And so Jesus said, you know, hey, don't do it for the reward of others. Now, I want you to see something as we end today. What is the constant theme in each of these instructions? There's one word that is used seven times as a noun in each of these instructions. You will receive your reward. You will receive your reward. Jesus has used the word reward seven times in these verses about a believer's motive for giving, praying, and fasting. Now, I know you're thinking, what happened to the Lord's Prayer? That's next week. You notice I skipped over and didn't say anything about it. Wow, that's interesting. We're not going to deal with the Lord's Prayer. We'll do that next week. And so there is a reward. What is the reward? What is this reward that Jesus is looking for? That, I'm sorry, that Jesus is referencing. It's the same reward that the Old Testament saints received. It's the same reward. Remember in Genesis 15, The Lord appeared to Abraham, and Abraham has been promised in in Genesis 12. He says, get up and leave your country and go to another country. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless your people. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Seven, Seven promises. And all of the promises that God gives to Abraham have to do and hinge upon one promise in particular, the giving to him of a son that is from the loins of Abraham. And so years later, Abraham ain't got no children. It's about 15 years later and still no kids. And so the Lord knows, hey, Abraham's having a little struggle. He's not losing faith. It's just like, what, when, how? So should I make my, my uh, servant, Eliezer of Damascus, my, you know, that was a typical thing, a surrogate son. Should I adopt him? And that's one. So he's struggling with this. And the Lord appears to Abraham in chapter 15 and verse 1. And what does he say to Abraham? I am your reward. Is that what he said? No. What does he say? I am your great reward. Your shield, but your what? Great reward. He doesn't say I'm your reward. He says I am a great reward. In other words, all the rewards of what you will attain in this life in a physical way, in a relational way, 
have to do and bespeak of and prefigure or foreshadow and are collected into the great reward of a believer. Remember the word blessing? What is the blessing of a believer? Blessed are those. Blessed are you. Blessed. Blessed. Eight of these blessings. And then the ninth one, you know, to kind of encapsulate the other, the one before. What are these blessings? Knowing God. What is our great reward? Why are we doing what we're doing? Is it because God is our great reward? And is it to know and experience him as our great reward in a deeper way? Is that what motivates us? Is that what moves us along? Remember Moses. Listen to these words from Hebrews. Remember Moses? You saw the movie? Everybody knows who Moses is. No, it's not Charlton Heston. Moses is reared in the house of Pharaoh. There is the richest man and the most powerful man on earth. And he is considered to be Pharaoh's son, one of the Pharaoh's sons. You can't get better than this in a worldly sense. Think of the money and the pleasures and the activities and all of the Think of what Moses had. Think of where he could go, what he could do, who he was, how people adulated him and revered him and looked up to him and obeyed him and cowered before him because his word was the word of the Pharaoh, his father. Think. Think of what Moses had. But what was Moses' uh, Moses motivation? What drove Moses? was not something for or about Moses, was something for and about God. Listen to what he says in Hebrews. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you know what that means? He looked at all the things of Egypt. He looked at it all. He looked at the world of Egypt. And he says, I don't want any of it because all of it is not pleasing to God in the way that God wants me to live as his son. And so he says this, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Greater, greater excitement, greater pleasure, greater motivation than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking for the reward. What is the reward? I am your great reward. You see, Moses had a choice, as all of us do, to look around and to see. Oh, and then to see his fellowship with God the Father. And to compare the two and to say, you know what? Compared to that, this is nothing. And so Moses chose. Can you imagine finding pleasure in being rejected? Misunderstood? How many of you would want, found your pleasure in that? And yet, what does Hebrews say? For the joy, for the pleasure that was set before him, Jesus what? 
endured the cross. Now, the cross is not just an event at that time. The cross is his whole life. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God the Father. What pleasure or joy was he looking to? The pleasure and the joy of his Father's pleasing. That's what motivated Jesus. My Father's pleasing. And when God's pleasure and pleasing and joy is the central motive moving us to do and decide and to go and whatever it is in our life, rather than just what I want to do and how I want to live and whatever, when God more and more becomes that central motivation, then we will experience true godly pleasure in life as he moves us along. You see, Moses, like Abraham, learned that God's pleasure was his treasure, that God himself was a great reward. Listen to 1 Corinthians. Do, do we consider the fellowship of Christ himself by the Spirit to be our great reward? Do we consider that? Do we pray about what we're doing? Do we go to the Word and be informed? Keith talked about this last week. By the Word. By prayer. Do we do that? Do we ask God what I am doing and where I am going and how I am acting? Does this please you? Is this your way for my life? I didn't say, is it your way for everybody's life? Is it your way for my life? How are we being motivated? You see, our great reward is fellow is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, through whom we experience the pleasure of a Heavenly Father over us as we walk with Him by the Spirit. Our This is our true pleasure, His pleasure over us and in us. Amen. Moving us and motivating us for this day. Well done. Well done. Welcome home. That's the goal and the reward of everything we do. Correct? Well done. You've imaged me. You've done it my way, unlike Frank Sinatra. You've pleased me. You, your life, has reflected me. Now I reward you with the rewards that I give in heaven. Some on earth, but these are just trinkets concerned uh, in reference to the great reward of heaven. Amen? Next week we'll talk about the Lord's Prayer.